de Dominion Podcast. De Dominion Podcast. The Dominion Podcast. This is the Dominion Podcast. I'm David Zinman. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the practice of solitary confinement in Canadian prisons, or as it's known bureaucratically, segregation. The United Nations has classified solitary confinement over 15 days to be a form of torture. And many studies have found irreversible effects over that same period. But in Canada, one in every four people jailed in federal prisons experiences solitary confinement with an average stay of 27 days. And following the cases of Ashley Smith, Edward Snowshoe, and more recently Adam Capay, the pervasiveness of solitary confinement in Canada has become a national political issue. On the show today, you're going to be hearing from Bobby Lee Worm, a woman who has held in solitary confinement for over three years. You'll also be hearing from someone we're calling Alex, it's not his real name, who works as a prison chaplain in Quebec. But we're starting things off with Deborah Parks, currently the chair in feminist legal studies at the Allard School of Law. Her research focuses on the imprisonment of women, prisoner rights, and the limits of prison reform. Uh, so Deborah, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Um, so my first question to start off is, when did solitary confinement start as a practice in Canada? Or, or also, how did it start as a practice? Well, I mean, solitary confinement, that's a practice that's been with us here in Canadian correctional institutions from the beginning because the correctional institutions that were set up in Canada were similar in approach to those that were set up in the United States around the same time. I mean, the original idea behind solitary confinement was based on the idea of penitence, right? The penitentiary itself was a religious model, and the Quakers were involved in those original designs and ideas for penitentiaries with these cells that would involve personal contemplation and isolation. Uh, Quakers have since that time come a long way and are actually generally take an abolitionist approach to imprisonment, see the use of solitary confinement and punishment practices generally as harmful. You know, we're not, we don't have the same justification as a religious idea, but we still have the practice of segregation and solitary confinement from those early days. And in between when this started as a practice and, and today where we're seeing it as such a pervasive thing in Canadian prisons, who traditionally have been most subject to solitary confinement as a tactic? The first thing to kind of keep in mind is whenever we're talking about solitary confinement or segregation, there's broadly speaking two forms of it, right? There's disciplinary segregation and there's administrative segregation. A lot of people are under the apprehension that we're talking about people who are uh, isolation cells for punishment, but that's actually, at least in the current context, a small proportion of those who are in segregation. The most recent federal numbers I saw were, you know, well under 20% are for discipline. In fact, under 10%, as I recall, and over 80% are administrative segregation. The problem with administrative segregation is that it is long-term and for virtually any reason and without external oversight or review and without limits. 
what we know from the information that correctional authorities do release when pressed to do so, and certainly in the federal system we know more than we know about the provincial systems, is that it is people with mental health disabilities as well as racialized populations. So Indigenous women and men are much more likely to be in segregation than non-Indigenous prisoners. Black, African-Canadian, other racialized prisoners are disproportionately in segregation. And in terms of the history of the trend, has a disproportionate representation of Indigenous and, and Black people in Canadian prisons always been reflected as well in the use of solitary confinement, or is that a more recent trend? Well, certainly the overrepresentation of those populations in prison in the first place has gone up in recent years. So, right, we're on an alarming upward trend and women in particular like that's the fastest growing population of prisoners is women and within that indigenous women the increase in indigenous women prisoners is rising even faster than for indigenous men and then when you look at within the whole incarcerated population it is indigenous women and men and other racialized prisoners who are disproportionately in segregation uh, in maximum security less likely to get parole all of these kinds of things are disproportionately experienced by racialized and Indigenous prisoners. And we don't always have stats going back a long way and, you know, disaggregated for race, but certainly we know that's on an increasing trajectory now. In, in terms of uh, just what you were saying about, like, there's a certain the certain period of time where we don't have the records, and, and thinking about the, the history of a lot of institutions like Canadian prisons, can you speak at all to the relationship between Canadian prisons and their role in colonialism? Well, certainly now you can see that correctional institutions are institutions that perpetuate the inequalities of colonialism. You know, we have a history of, for example, direct criminalization of the legal practices and regimes of Indigenous nations here in Canada, right? The history of outlawing not just cultural practices, but the essence of legal and political institutions in those communities. So you see that. You see the criminalization of practices that Indigenous people have used to survive colonialism, the failure to actually meaningfully address Indigenous sovereignty, you know, the relegation of Indigenous people to reserves with inadequate resources, all of these things have contributed to criminalization and certainly residential schools. And the TRC report, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada report, is an excellent resource for Canadians to make those connections, to see the interrelationship between the institutions of colonialism in writ large in terms of Indian Act, residential schools, and then the institutions that we still have that are not formally imposing assimilation and dispossession, but that are actually doing that work by the sheer numbers and impact of imprisonment on Indigenous communities. The TRC report is an excellent resource for making those connections for Canadians. So in preparing for this interview, I was looking at the increase of solitary confinement in Canadian prisons, and I noticed that the CSC uh, reported a big drop recently in federal prisons, but I had trouble finding any clear numbers about the rates in provincial jails. Do you know how the, the two compare and how they relate to a broader trend in the use of solitary confinement? 
Yeah, well, that's a really good question, and it's one that I'm uh, I'm certainly interested in, in trying to track down the answer for. The reality is that despite the rising awareness of the harms of solitary confinement, despite high-profile deaths in custody, despite well-documented impacts of these practices, we still don't have transparency or accountability at the provincial and territorial level about the use of solitary confinement or segregation or whatever it is called in the various correctional systems. What we know is the federal numbers. And as you said, there has been a decline reported in the use of administrative segregation. That tells us two things. One, that at least with respect to the idea that it needs to be used without limit, with, without significant oversight, and that it's an essential correctional tool, the decrease that they have reported themselves suggests that if it can be decreased without any formal requirement that it be decreased, that suggests that it's at a minimum significantly overused. The second thing about those numbers is that, again, that is reported numbers about specifically administrative segregation. What that doesn't capture is other forms of isolation, secure living units, enhanced units, various kinds of enhanced placements, there's medical observation, there's different kind of language that you see both federally and provincially when people are placed in various forms of isolation that aren't necessarily captured within the numbers on administrative segregation. But looking at the provincial and territorial level, like I said, we don't even have those numbers to really go by, although there have been some changes recently in Ontario, and that's been the result of a woman prisoner who brought a human rights complaint about being held in solitary confinement, uh, mental illness, and the exacerbation of that through being placed in segregation. And there was a settlement to that complaint, which required Ontario Corrections to disclose their statistics on their use of segregation. And what we're seeing, not surprisingly, in those Ontario provincial numbers is similar alarming trends to what we see in the federal system. Overrepresented in the segregated population is Indigenous prisoners, Black prisoners, and people's mental health needs. But generally speaking, across the country, we don't have good statistics on the use of segregation. So over over the past decade, there have been multiple high-profile cases of people being held in solitary confinement in, in ways that eventually resulted in their deaths. In the case of Edward Snowshoe in 2010, Ashley Smith in 2007, and you know there were two separate coroner's inquests, inquiries, and investigations. And I'm just wondering if anything has changed since then. Well, certainly there's been changes in policy, and there have been changes in some of the internal oversight mechanisms. Um, So yes, we have seen changes. But again, that's going to vary very widely institution to institution. So you can have changes in policy, changes in legislation, but you also have culture that develops in a particular institution about how the population is managed. Well, in in terms of a more consistent change uh, being implemented, there's several challenges to the use of solitary confinement before the courts right now. What do you think the likelihood is of this kind of change coming from these challenges? Well, I mean, if you can actually get a legal decision, the difference between that and some other kinds of recommendations or reports that we have about these harmful practices is that if you get a legal decision with a court order, you can actually enforce that. But the problem of trying to make change in the correctional context is that you often find something else grows up in its place. 
And so you have a new name for a new practice that looks remarkably similar to the old practice that is apparently no longer being used. And so, so while I'm someone who thinks it's important for there to be legal challenges to provide some measure of transparency and accountability for what goes on behind prison walls, the challenge is that it's very difficult to make change in relation to an institution like corrections because it has at its very objective to deprive people of their liberty, to punish. And so I'm someone who thinks we need to, if we're doing this kind of work, that we ideally do so from an anti-incarceration or anti-carceral mindset or ethic, which recognizes the harms of incarceration as an institution, as imprisonment as an institution, and seeks to make change that would be more systemic in nature, that would get us away from the use of incarceration. The vast majority of people who are in prison are there because they are poor, they are marginalized, the impacts of colonization, as we were talking about earlier, And if we actually addressed the social and economic inequality in our society and moved away from a punishment model for addressing harms, we would be much further along the path to a just society than we are now. Well, Deborah, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk about all this. Well, thank you for having me. It's not just rich people that own the media. I own my media. I own my media. I own own my media. media. I own my media. I own my media. I own my media. The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members. Join us today at mediacoop.ca slash join. This is the Dominion Podcast. I'm David Zidman. One of the reasons we don't often hear about solitary confinement in Canada is all the euphemisms that are used for it. Segregation, management protocol, secure isolation. All these terms tend to paper over how widespread solitary confinement actually is in Canada and who is disproportionately targeted for it. For example, as of last year, almost 70% of inmates with mental illness had been put in long-term solitary confinement, an average of 81 days. Those numbers are staggering, and, and they have an effect. But for those of us on the outside, it can be hard to understand what that actually means for people inside and, and how these prisons are operating. To get a better picture, the Media Co-op's Kira Page spoke with someone we're calling Alex, a prison chaplain who works in federal prisons in Quebec. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us just what happens when people get put into segregation. Technically, if you get put in the hole, you have five day, five business days. Everything works in business days. And, and so, if I say five days, it's five. I mean, it's it's a government institution, so it's very government in that way. So it's five business days, and then there's a committee. So it's usually the director of the prison, a psychologist. That's usually attributed just to the seg unit. I mean, because they have you know, enough work right there. And then um, their PO, 
sorry, the, the parole officer. I always use acronyms and I have to stop. But um, And then depending on the reaction or how the inmate responds, well, then sometimes they'll be like, okay, you need another five days or, okay, you're good to go or you're good to go, but right now we don't have a place for you. So as soon as we do, so, you know, maybe a day or two more before they get brought into a range. Uh, so, you know, it's people are in there for different reasons, for different sentences. So it makes it that it can be, it can be hard sometimes. Can you tell me a little bit more about the impact on people's mental health of being in solitary? A lot of the, uh, there's been a lot of cuts in mental health in society. I mean, we've all seen it with people on the street. Unfortunately, a lot of them end up in the prison system because they're not getting the help that they need. We have a unit that's called the Regional Mental Health Wing. A lot of inmates are there, but even that, they kind of overflood into other prisons. So their mental state, to be alone all this time, it can be dangerous for them to be alone with their thoughts. That people dealing with schizophrenia, it can really disintegrate for certain people. Like a lot of the question I get, a lot of people always ask me, what day is it? Or like, what time is it? Because they have that concept is God. I mean, yes, they get their meals, but sometimes, like, you know, they even kind of lose track of was that supper, was that lunch, you know. If you're always in this room with nothing, you know, and there's just a big neon light, morning, afternoon, it all seems the same to you. So one of the statistics that we found doing the research for this piece was that the overrepresentation of racialized people and indigenous people in prisons, but especially in solitary, is more recent than I expected it to be, that a lot of that has occurred during the Harper years. Is that something that you see reflected in, in the prisons that you work in? Well, I see an increase in just the population. Native populations are extremely overrepresented in the correctional population. Um, the problem also when you get into jail is that jail is extremely segregated. You know, I, I know a guy that got shunned by his whole wing because he had supper with black people. Like he got shunned by all the white inmates. So there's, there's, it's still very true. And I see a lot of Inuit inmates, and they hardly speak. They usually only speak Inuit or very little English. So you put them in a very French population. And then that can seen as, be seen as aggression when you're in the general pop. If you're not talking to people, if you're kind of being solitary, so then they get into trouble. So then they get into fights and et cetera. So they go, they get put in seg. But so they're different culturally, and then on top of it, they speak English. So they already have a lot against them. And some people, I'm gonna say, have very dated ideas of native culture. I don't know how to say it politely, but uh... um, can you tell me more about what you see? in the prison in terms of how Native folks end up in solitary more often? Like, what do you see happening that results in that? What happens a lot is they just keep to themselves. So that is seen as non-cooperation in a prison. If you just keep to yourself and you're just quiet and you're not integrating, that refusal to integrate is seen as an aggressive move. And that's a bad thing, especially at reception where they're evaluating the inmates, seeing how socialized they are and how they'll work in different populations to see, like, we can maintain friendships or relationships with people and sees them as, if you're being antisocial, well, then why? It's seen as resistance and non-cooperation. And then that's seen as security risk. So then what do you do? You put them in SEG. 
I think a lot of the stories about solitary confinement in Canada that people know about are ones where people were put in the hole for years and years and years. Do you see that happening in the prisons that you work in? Um, or have you heard of that from, from inmates? Yeah, I, I see a guy. I mean, he's not in SEG anymore, but he spent a good six to eight years. In solitary? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was it for administrative reasons? No. No, no, it was disciplinary. He killed people inside. So that's when you're kind of like, they don't know what to do. Because, I mean, you're already in for life, so you can't threaten, like, I'm going to give you another life sentence. So they put them in there. But he, yeah, he stayed a long time. And this is someone that you were speaking with? Yeah, yeah, I see him regularly. And I see somebody else, too, who tried to escape. So those will have long... I mean, I've met men, too, that have spent years in segregation. You see that there's there, there's definitely a trauma attached to it. I mean, you know, some of them try to be tough and say, you know, we're men, so, you know, we... I'm not that affected by it, but you can see some of the the trauma and how it does affect these people. Because segregation sometimes becomes a quick answer. We've all been in kind of companies or offices that it's kind of like, you have this one thing, oh, it works, so let's just keep doing this. Can you tell me more about about the impact that you see on people who've been in solitary for that long? You can see it in certain people by being alone, like really alone, like with nothing. If a mind is not strong and is not stable, it can break quite easily. And that's why they always are checking like the four dimensions to make sure, you know, are you aware of time, space? Like, are you making sense when you talk? Because uh, I've seen people have complete kind of the breakdown. There's a, definitely a survival mode that's always on. That's how they survive SEG. Once they kind of see that, well, then they just want to stay like that because they're just going to get hurt again. And like chaplains, we're lucky. We have that privileged position where we're, we're not seen as part of everybody else. We got a really weird role where we're kind of between both, you know, and the inmates usually, like I, I feel, I've never felt, never felt like my security was at risk, ever. Being in solitary for six years, what do you think the impact is going to be on those people? I see it as PTSD. I mean, I know usually we, we relate that more to people who've been in the army and stuff, but somebody who does that much SEG is going to have to be dealt with the same as anybody who suffers from PTSD. And that's usually what they do. They usually, they're people that train a lot, that try to expand a lot of energy. I mean, the two that I'm talking about specifically, I don't think will ever step foot outside, unfortunately. They, they rely a lot on meditation practice, trying to find calm, so that's kind of what I'm there for, is to try to always just kind of keep them on that path of just working towards calming the mind and to giving them some sort of release for at least a short period. But there's definitely some stress, there's some paranoia. So I see it a lot as PTSD. For those of us who really don't have any experience with solitary, what is it that we are missing about that experience? Like what's the biggest disconnect between people on the inside and people on the outside understanding um, what that experience is like? I think people maybe just aren't aware of the impact that it can have on our minds to be separated like that and to be isolated. I think we take for granted a lot of the liberties that we have. If they could just see what it's like to be 
in solitary just for a day, I think it would really open people's eyes just to see the, I think when people started seeing stuff like Ashley Smith, it was, it was a shock to people. They were just kind of like, whoa, okay, this is happening. You always think in a movie, oh, it's fiction, it's, this isn't really happening. But, I mean, stuff like this really happens. And I think people don't realize the feeling of just being powerless and just being isolated and just having no control over anything. I think if people could just see that, it just I think it would create so much more empathy. That's what saddens me the most. It's just we're not willing to look into you know, what people are, are living and what they're feeling and and trying to put ourselves in their sho- those shoes. You know, they're, they're human beings. Yeah. Thank you, Alex, for speaking with us and, and sharing uh, what you're seeing. It's not just rich people that own the media. But by leaving out the most important things you need to know, they can elevate awareness to a new all-time low. I own my media. 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 The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members. But if it's just left out, can you say the paper lied? A lot of things that happened didn't happen after all. If there's no one in the forest who will put it in the news, I guess the tree didn't fall. Join us today at mediacoop.ca slash join. I'm joining today. You should too. So there are multiple legal challenges to solitary confinement currently underway in Canada. In 2015, the John Howard Society launched a charter challenge against the practice. Last month, the class action was filed for mentally ill inmates placed in solitary. And just last week, a woman in Montreal named Arlene Golan filed a suit for the nine months she was held in solitary. But prior to this, in 2011, the BC Civil Liberties Association filed a lawsuit on behalf of Bobby Lee Worm who was held in solitary for three and a half years. Bobby Lee is Cree, a member of the Daystar First Nation. And as Deborah mentioned earlier, in the same way that Indigenous women are disproportionately criminalized and imprisoned, they're also targeted for solitary confinement. While Indigenous women make up about 2% of the population, they make up a third of all women sentenced federally, and half of all segregation placements in women's prisons. In 2013, Bobby Lee received a settlement from the federal government and has since continued to fight to end the practice of solitary confinement. The piece you're about to hear features Bobby Lee describing her experience and was originally produced by Optic Nerve Films for the BC Civil Liberties Association. My earliest memory would probably be me visiting my dad in prison. I knew that he was staying away from drugs and bad people and stuff like that. So I, I kind of always looked forward to dad going to jail growing up. I know that's a sad thing to say, but 
At some point, I thought jail was a good place. Um, this girl's parents ended up charging me for assault causing bodily harm. Did about two years in juvie. That's where I started doing things that a 14, 15 year old girl, you know, wouldn't be doing. And I was um, on the streets uh, using drugs. I was selling my body on the streets. You know, I had nowhere to go. I was pretty much homeless. I was like living out of bathrooms and restaurants and stuff like that. And violence was just a, another thing you needed to know how to handle yourself. That's where it all began for me. I'm doing the same trip my dad did. I was repeating his footsteps. I was classified max security within two months that I hit federal prison. Uh, I guess they got tired of me getting into fights and they therefore then placed me on a program called management protocol. You know, I'm somebody that has never thought of suicide ever and never thought of it since. But when I was in it, yeah, I sure felt it. They made me feel like I killed people for fun. Whereas I've never taken another human life before. But they, won't, they sure knew how to make me feel like I wanted to take my life. It was very cold, very empty, just a very sad, dark place. It wasn't enough for me to walk around in. I would feel like I was getting tinier in the cell. It would sometimes feel like I was constantly being shrunk, like being caved in from it, how small it was. It is torture. It really is. It is designed to break you. It's designed to destroy you. I knew that I was a good person and I knew that I deserved more in life and I knew that I wasn't that violent and I wasn't that out of control and I wasn't... Uh, I, I wasn't going to be a part of that, you know, statistic as First Nations women being inside and being on management protocol. I was uh, starting to have more, uh, more violent thoughts. I would just cause chaos just to feel that I wasn't a ghost. It just went on like that for years. I went into a courtroom one time and a judge didn't know what management protocol was. So my lawyer had to explain what management protocol was. So that's when it hit me that, okay, there's something really wrong here. I was in touch with prisoners' legal services that uh, got, 
got me in touch with BC Civil Liberties. The further they looked into it, they wanted to jump on board with getting my story out there and, you know, helping me take this to court and find justice. My life now is good. It's really good. I'm in a really good place. Um, I have a daughter and I am soon to be expected mom again this August, so I am really uh, blessed with that. I could have had this life long ago if they would have gave me that opportunity. I know what's still going on. To keep them in that setting longer than they have to be is just uncalled for and it's it's inhumane it really is so that's our show for today If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show using any podcast app. Thanks to Stefan Kristoff and DJ Johnny Ripper for the sounds you heard on this episode. The Dominion podcast is recorded in the studios of CKUT in downtown Montreal on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Thanks for listening.